All right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. Wishing you guys, uh, hope you guys had a great uh, Merry Christmas with your friends and family, and I know I did, um, and looking forward to the new year, that sort of thing. So this is uh, just a quick um, a quick show, I'm hoping. I'm hoping it won't be too long stuff, uh, although, uh, yeah, I am kind of verbose at times. But um, this is a fulfillment of my promise to Michael Loftus, to... Uh, based on my show on Messianic Prophecies, uh, he kind of got back to me behind the scenes and was saying, well, you know, I was hoping when you addressed the Daniel 9 Messianic Prophecy that you kind of uh, refuted the Maccabean thesis. And I didn't do that. I didn't prepare for that um, in in my show. Um, so I told him I would do a bonus show uh, to kind of address the Maccabean thesis and some of his uh, some of his issues on that front. So with that said, let's not waste time. Let's get straight into that. Um, okay, so Daniel chapter 9, refuting the Maccabean thesis. Okay, so just to go over again, Daniel 9 uh, verses 24 to 27 is specifically the Messianic prophecy that we're looking at. And it's important to note that this prophecy is independent of earlier prophecies in Daniel 8, or, you know, other prophecies in Daniel 11 and stuff like that. So it's it's not, um, I would say Daniel chapter 8 is about talking about the Maccabean age and, and the Greeks and stuff. It's not Rome uh, that is the, the little horn or something like that. So um, that's one of the reasons skeptics will often associate Daniel 9 is because, well, they say, well, Daniel 8 is about the Greeks, not Rome. And I tend to agree with that, and I'll link to a, a free scholarly paper from an evangelical Christian uh, even agreeing with that. But that doesn't speak any—that is totally independent of this Daniel 9 prophecy. So that has nothing to do with the other. So let's read Daniel 9 here. So Daniel's praying, and he realizes the 70-year Babylonian captivity should be at, coming to an end soon as per Jeremiah, his better, his, his former prophet said. And so he's kind of grieving, and then the angel Gabriel shows up. He gives him this prophecy, quote-unquote, 70 weeks or 70 sevens. That means a period of seven years. Each week is a year uh, with these prophetic sevens here. So 70 sevens, 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy, and to anoint the most holy, or some people, and to anoint a most holy place in this translation. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, until the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, uh, 434 years, I believe, Jerusalem shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in distress, in a troubled time. It'll be persecuted during this time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and or killed and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the temple. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, seven years, and for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So that's what the prophecy says. And we have these interesting periods. So what is it that's the, what is this Maccabean thesis that Loftus wants me to respond to? Um, well, my, Michael provided this book. I'm not sure who this commentary is by, or if it's a skeptic or a Christian or something, but let's take a look at uh, the commentary here. So he, he says, Look, uh, in chapter 9, verse 24, right up here. Um, so the 70 weeks, the 490 years, this uh, liberal Christian or skeptical voice who adopts the Maccabean thesis is saying, 
just as Jeremiah's 70 years was an approximation, the 490 years here is not to be taken literally. It's just an approximation. Similarly, the distribution of the, the three weeks or the weeks periods in the following verses indicates only relative proportions of the total figure. Um, so this is a, an interesting claim here that this, all these years, it's uh, weeks of years, 490 year period from the going forth of this decree. This is all just approximations. We don't need to take this stuff literally. Uh, you're not supposed to be doing counting years according to this uh, person here that made this commentary. So it's important to see in terms of uh, the prophecies, though, it is eschatological and messianic because this commentator admits that an expression used almost always of a, the temple or the altar. But he says, look, the author sees the definitive establishment of the kingdom of God, everlasting righteousness, realized in the reconsecration of the temple after Antiochus's desecration or personified in the holy community, such as the Son of Man with Jesus and that sort of thing. So the, the Maccabean thesis here is this part about Antiochus Epiphanes IV uh, of the Seleucid Empire, or Seleucid Empire, however you say it. Um, these guys uh, were brutal pagan Greeks, and they were, they were in charge of the land of Israel of this time, and they were persecuting uh, Jews who were religiously faithful to the Bible, Bible-believing Jews, and they were trying to Hellenize this was the age of Hellenization, where Greek pagan culture was infecting or uh, being assimilated all of the surrounding cultures. And this is the same in Jerusalem. Many Jews were becoming paganized or Hellenized, so to speak, to assimilated into Greek culture. And, and uh, this offended a lot of Jews at the time. But it was Antiochus Epiphanes IV who um, this uh, Hellenizing influence came to an end. And uh, he did. He put an abomination in the temple. Some people, I think it says later on what that was. It was a, a stat, a dedication, an inscription dedicating the temple to Zeus, that king of the pagan god, Greek gods. Um, and uh, obviously, this was for the religiously, biblically faithful Jews. This uh, you can't do this. This was this is what led to the Maccabean revolt. Um, but that's what it's talking about here, the Antiochus's desecration of the temple that took place in about 168 to 167 BC. Okay, so in terms of when this 490-year approximate period starts in verse 25, from the utterance to be rebuilt, from the time of Jeremiah's prophecy. So that's in around 605 BC or 597 BC, depending on which prophecy this skeptic has in mind, skeptical or liberal commentator has in mind. And it also mentions, it's also taking the view that there's, um, okay, let me just read it. Okay. So one, anointed and a leader, either Cyrus the Great, the pagan Persian who let the Jews return from Babylonian captivity to the Holy Land, who was called the anointed of the Lord. He was the first pagan to be called a Messiah. Anointed one just means Mashiach in Hebrew or Messiah. Of the Lord to the end of the exile, for the or maybe it's the high priest Joshua who presided over the rebuilding of the uh, altar of sacrifice after the exile. The first period of the seven weeks. This refers to forty-nine years, an approximation of the time of the exile. During sixty-two weeks rebuilt, this is a period of four hundred thirty-four years, roughly approximating the interval between the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the exile and the beginning of the Seleucid persecution, the Hellenizing of, of Israel in the 160s and 170s and 160s BC. In terms of chapter 9, verse 26, this commentator says, and the anointed, the one that gets killed after the 7 and 62 week period, which is a period of 484 years, doubtless this is the high priest Onias III, who was murdered and killed in about 172 to 171 BC. This guy says 171. He was the anointed one. Every high priest is, an, is a Mashiach, is a Messiah, is a anointed one, which is what the word Messiah means. 
And this guy got killed during this period by one of Antiochus's agents. So this must be what this prophecy is saying, according to this liberal commentator. Um, and it's from this which the author dates the beginning of the persecution, Onias's death. And uh, interestingly, he says Onias was in exile when he was killed here. And who is this leader, this prince that killed him? Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And then finally, on verse 27, he gives his take one week. What does that mean? Well, the final phase of the period in view, the time of Antiochus's persecution, uh, it is Ant Antiochus himself, who is this prince, this satanic guy destroying the temple and, and the uh, city. And the many, who are they? Well, they were the faithless, Hellenized, paganized Jews who allied themselves with the heathen. Um, and this corresponds with 1 Maccabees, uh, chapter 1 there. Now, half of the week, how does he interpret that? He says, well, three and a half years. See note, this is after three and a half years, this is when the temple was de desecrated by Antiochus from 167 to 165 BC. And probably the main, uh, in the probably in the main portal is where he put this uh, idolatrous uh, dedication to Zeus. And he explains the horrible abomination, perhaps an inscription, here it is, was placed on the portal of the temple, dedicating the temple to the Olympian pagan god Zeus. Um, so, yeah, that's in a nutshell the Maccabean thesis. These are the some of the claims that Michael Loftus wanted me to respond to. So let's just summarize the four main Maccabean thesis claims here in this text. One, none of the three periods of time making up the 70 weeks or 77s are meant to be taken as literal, but merely relative proportions of the total figure, and with the total itself meant to be nothing but an approximation. And obviously this uh, liberal or skeptical commentator is assuming, well, they obviously screwed up the dates. They just got them wrong because they're primitive barbarian Jews who can't count properly. Um, so I guess that's kind of the implied assumption there. Secondly, the period following the 62 weeks period approximately corresponds with the beginning of the Seleucid persecution of the Jews under Antiochus IV, uh, start where he came to power starting in about 175 BC, and then the subsequent Maccabean revolt from between 167 to 160 BC. Um, Three, the anointed one that gets killed after the 62-week period was doubtless the high priest Onias III, who was replaced by his brother Jason in 175 BC and then was later killed in approximately 172 to 171 BC. And finally, we have this, uh, the final week, uh, which doesn't really, this final week claim we don't really, I'll address it quickly, but it's not as important to what Michael Loftus wanted me to respond to. But anyways, this, there's also this claim that the final week begins in 167 BC with Antiochus setting up the pagan horrible abomination, which was this inscription to Zeus in the temple between 167 to 165 BC, sparking the Maccabean revolt. Okay, so what do we do by assessment? So let's look at the first claim here. None of the three periods, these, these are all meant to be just mere approximations. They're not meant to be taken literally. And on this front, I, from what I've seen from various Christian explanations or counters to this, this kind of skepticism, um, obviously there are various ways to go about it, including double fulfillment. Some Christians want to say, well, this is about Antiochus and it's about the Messiah and stuff like that. They they appeal to double fulfillment. And I agree with Michael Loftus that double fulfillment is, uh, it happens. It's, it is a prophetic, valid prophetic device that can happen biblically. I mean, God, there's nothing against double fulfillment. God can use that. Um, but it's not satisfying. So I, I, I think, you know, we would want to look as Christians, is there a way to rule it? without appeal to double fulfillment to solve this. And the best that I've seen against this claim that the things are just metaphorical approximations, and instead they're literal, these years are meant to be literal, is an argument that I found from an evangelical Protestant uh, biblical scholar and archaeologist. And he argues that, well, look, these 77s are meant to be interpreted 
in light of the context of the sabbatical year observance principle in the Bible. Um, so look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 19 to 23, and we say, Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. It's talking about the Babylonians uh, destroying the city of God in the first temple. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar did. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of prophet Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were completed. So note, these last two passages directly and explicitly connect the Jews' neglect of the sabbatical year observance as commanded in the Old Testament and in the Torah and their exile from Babylon for a period of 70 years, uh, which is the equivalent of 10 sabbatical year cycles because that's a seven-year cycle, right? 77, 70 sabbatical year cycles. Uh, so that's 10 times 7 equals 70 years. So this is an often neglected aspect here. And it's important to note the burning of the temple, which was an essential aspect of the quote-unquote desolation prophesied, is known to have taken place on uh, Aviv 9, or July 29th, 587 BC. And that's just about two months before the next agricultural year would have begun on Tishri 1st or September 18th, 587 BC. So there's the, you know, the, the already desolated land began to quote unquote enjoy its Sabbaths as of the start of Tishri 587 because bad satanic Jews who weren't following the Bible, they were taken in exile out of the land, the land was destroyed. And so, ah, oh, finally the land can breathe. It's no longer polluted by these uh, unbelieving Jews and stuff like that. They've been punished by God and taken to Babylon in the exile. So, yeah, a couple months later, this is the first time the land is said to, quote-unquote, enjoy its Sabbaths again in uh, Tishri 1st, 587 BC. Um, and this has the 70th, 70th year of land rest being completed on Elul 29th, or September 17th in our calendar, 516 BC. Now, since the rebuilt temple was dedicated just six months after that, on March 12th, 515 BC, according to Ezra chapter 6, verse 15, it appears that we should understand the destruction of the temple as an integral part of the land's desolation prophesied here by Jeremiah. And that is a that is a fundamental spiritual component. Um, so this is important to note. The prophecy isn't just when it's pr prophesying desolation. Uh, it's not just about physical destruction. It, it's more crucially and more importantly about the spiritual component, the spiritual desolation. And this fact emphasizes that the sabbatical year's significance was fundamentally a spiritual matter. It was a sign of the people keeping a covenant, their Old Testament Abrahamic covenant with Mo and Moses' covenant with God. So these are fundamentally linked. But it's important to note that because just because it could have theoretically started here, we know biblically and historically it didn't start here. The Jews didn't start observing the sabbatical year cycle until later on. Um, so it, it didn't resume on Tishri 1st, 515 BC. It waited for a little bit later. And the, that's what the evidence indicates in terms of the counting of sabbatical year cycles didn't resume until after Ezra's return to the Holy Land. Um, just because the people really hadn't yet returned in a spiritual sense. The land hadn't been restored as per Daniel 9. Um, so there had to be both the physical and the spiritual return in order for the desolation to be fully lifted. And this is a fundamental aspect, this key here about the spiritual restoring of Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and how that was delayed after the 70-year period. 
Um, another matter which must be taken into consideration is that sabbatical years of the post-exilic period had to be reset. Um, and this took place, again, when the Jews returned to the land under Ezra. And that's just a biblical fact kind of thing, according to what it, the book of Ezra tells us. And the reason for this is that the counting was interrupted during the exilic period, during that 70-year period when the Jews were in Babylon. They didn't follow the sabbatical year cycles. That, those only had to be followed when you're in the land itself. Um, and that's in Leviticus 25, verse 2. So to any ancient Jews, I think the best interpretation of the weeks of Daniel 9.25, how the Jews in Daniel's day would have read this, were the periods of seven years. And the, this would immediately bring to mind the sabbatical year, seven-year sabbatical year cycles that the Lord established in Exodus and Leviticus. Okay, so the weeks as sabbatical year cycles. Now, some skeptics will say, well, there's, in the first place, there's this breakup, right, of seven sevens and then 62 weeks of years. So 49 years and 434 years. And this is the way modern Jews read this interpretation. And, th and that's why they say, well, there's two messiahs. And when I gave my presentation on uh, on uh, Louis Dizon's uh, 1P3 show, I just, for the sake of argument, granted to the Jews, fine, whatever worst case scenario for the Christian, you want to say there's two anointed ones or two messiahs prophesied, one after 49 years, one after 62 years, great, grand, and groovy. I'll grant you that. And it's still my circumstantial argument for Jesus as the Messiah who gets killed uh, still works out. But um, we now we come to the more important, but is that the proper interpretation? And I would say no. I I personally think there is only one Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. However, there is this thing. Even uh, Christian scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser, for example, will say, well, there is this atna, uh, a disjunctive accent in the Jewish Hebrew Masoretic text um, of Daniel 9.25. And this is the reason why modern Jews and some Christians like Dr. Heiser will separate the seven weeks from the 62 weeks and say there are two anointed princes. Now, I, I personally don't buy this because, number one, all of the early Greek translations of Daniel, which preceded the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, the Theodosian, Symmachus, and the Peshitta, uh, as well as the Latin Vulgate, which Roman Catholics are, uh, that's important for you guys, they do not separate the seven and 62 weeks, but view them as a contiguous 69-week period, 484 years between the decree and the coming of the Messiah, thus providing ancient support for just ignoring this separation and saying there's only one Messiah, and he comes after 69 weeks. That said, well, but why does it break it up into seven weeks and 62 weeks then? Well, this is where I think the sabbatical year interpretation uh, cycle interpretation works because instead of seeing two anointed ones or two messiahs, an alternative way of reading this is the completion marked by the end of a jubilee cycle. That 49 period marked the end of the first jubilee since the restoration of the land. And Roger Young has discussed how when scripture speaks of a jubilee period, it uses inclusive reckoning. Um, so the Jubilees occurred every 49 years, which is seven weeks of years. Um, so, yeah, this first division in Daniel's 70 weeks was likewise 49 years long. And this implies that each period was not just some arbitrary period of seven years, but specifically a sabbatical year cycle culminating in the year of the Jubilees uh, or in the end of the Jubilee cycle incredible. Makes sense. Um, now, Daniel 9.25 informs us that a total of 69 sabbatical year cycles would completely elapse between the issuing of the key decree and the manifestation of the Messiah, the anointed one that gets killed. And this is meant to be literal years under the sabbatical year interpretation. So it was 483 literal years, not prophetic years of you know, 360-day calendar. That, um, and in the article, in the paper um, that I'll include on some of my sources on my blog for the show, um, there are various ways of interpreting, well, what is what is a year? 
Is it a literal 365 day year or not? And I always said that it, the three, I go for the literal 365 year cycle. And that is what the consistent with the sabbatical year cycle interpretation of these things. And in fact, we are supposed to get literal starts and end dates, which I'll get to in a moment and you'll find amazing as a Christian. Um, but um, yeah, so, so these are literal years. They're not uh, prophetic years of 360 day calendars or there are other interpretations that get refuted in some of the sources that I'll be scholarly sources that I'm using here. But yeah, the sabbatical year cycles are independently identified. This is important because this we have a way of independently verifying literally these sabbatical year cycles and seeing, do they reconcile with the Christian interpretation of this prophecy? Oh my goodness, you're going to be so amazed. A perfect fit when you see what, what I've got in store. But um, yeah, for now, uh, basically we should approach our study with an eye to relate the prophecy of Daniel 9, 20, verses 24 to 27, to a sabbatical year calendar. And on this front, we have two independent scholarly studies to choose from, either Ben Zion Watchholder or Benedict Zuckerman. And it's the latter, which is more in favor, has scholarly consensus that the Watchholder study is inconsistent with Daniel 9 in the literal interpretation, but it's it's not as credible as Zuckerman's study and the majority of scholars use this. And it's, it's the latter that yields a sabbatical year cycle that precisely and independently matches up with scholarly consensus. The majority of historians, atheists, Christian, Jewish, whatever, they all agree with Zuckerman mostly. And that is just subsequently reaffirmed and matches with Dan the Daniel 9 prophecy. So uh, let me just show, give you a little glimpse of that. Uh, so this is based on Zuckerman's scholarly dates. If we go to the um, start date, Okay. Well, you'll, you'll see that you'll see, this is what I'm talking about. And we'll come back to this um, when you see how the dates precisely match, but he's got all of the sabbatical year cycles. And this is what the majority of secular historians and scholars agree with. Basically, there are multiple possible candidates for the beginning of the 70 weeks period. And in order to see how the, the sabbatical year cycle interpretation can independently verify the our Christian interpretation of Daniel chapter 9, um, we have to figure out, well, when did it start? And this is what I presented in, in the show with Louis Dizon and, and Michael Loftus, right? So this, the liberal commentator here, he says, he goes for number one, Jeremiah's prophecy. When he received the 70-year prophecy about the Babylonian exile prior to either in 605 BC or in 597 BC, um, he says that's that was the issuing forth of the, the decree. That was the start of the 490-year period. But it's important to note virtually no scholars go for this as the uh, start period for the Daniel 9 prophecy. Number one, it just doesn't make any sense at all. A, a prophetic utterance is not a, an official edict or decree from an emperor, from a king. And that's what the prophecy demands. So this reinterpretation, revisionist history, where we say, well, maybe Jeremiah's prophecy is, is some kind of spiritual decree or something like that. That's not what the Daniel 9 has in mind. It is a literal earthly kingly decree that is being prophesied here, that is being uh, spoken of in this Daniel 9 prophecy. So this right away is a failure. And again, virtually no scholars see this as the, as the start. Number one, it's not the word it's not a decree to restore the city at all it was prophetically uttered before the city was even destroyed in the first place and secondly the years if you take the two or three periods whatever you want there are zero significant literal historical correlations with the maccabean period for example let's take the latest date to help out the skeptics 605 bc if that's the start of the 490 year period and we subtract the first two plus 62 weeks, seven plus 62 weeks, which is 483 years, we come out to 122 BC. Two, that's even with no gaps or anything. Too late. 40 years after the Maccabean thesis. And 
the Maccabean Revolt or the time of Antiochus or Onias III, and therefore we can rule this out. Um, and obviously that's why the liberal commentator that Loftus gave me to respond to has, oh, well, uh, don't take it literally. They're just approximations. Uh, don't pay attention to those literal years, right? That's why he has to, because otherwise the dates just don't work. But if my sabbatical year interpretation, cycle interpretation is correct, then you've just been destroyed. Um, no, because they are literal years. In fact, we have the we have the exact day this prophecy started and the exact day this prophecy was meant to end using the sabbatical year cycles. Okay, secondly, there was also the decree of Cyrus recorded in the Bible. This is an official decree, but it only referred to the temple. Then there was thirdly the decree of Darius, again, only reiterated Cyrus's previous decree and spoke of the temple only, not the city. Fourthly, the decree of Artaxerxes I in 457 BC, and uh, my scholarly sources determined that it was 457, not 458, as some scholars would argue it was one year earlier. Um, but yeah, this focused on the temple again, but it gave Ezra permission to use the funds as needed for the walls and, and the roads and stuff. And Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 indicates that the author, biblical, biblically inspired authors, associated this decree with the restoration of Jerusalem as a whole. Remember that restoration. It's not just physical. It's also talking about the spiritual restoration of the, of the city as well. And... And then finally, we have the commission of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, which dates to about, uh, this should be 444 BC, but some people date it as late as 446. Very well. Um, but this date, while it does mention the rebuilding of the city, the problem is this is not an official royal edict. It is not a decree at all, and therefore doesn't count. And furthermore, there are problems, because even if we take this date, then the 7 plus 62 weeks would give us about 30 uh, 38 AD, 444 minus 483 years, we get about 38 AD. There's no significant Messiah or anointed one who was killed um, in 38 AD, AD, according to Jews, secular historians, and even Christians. Who was who this person? There's no one. So the prophecy is just an utter failure. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that the start date is most assuredly 457 BC, and it's the decree of Artaxerxes that both the Bible and his secular history confirm is the start of this 490-year period. Now, what are some reasons uh, to favor this 457 decree beyond what we've just said? Well, as I said, number one, Ezra was given permission to use the funds as needed, and he used these to rebuild the walls of the city. In, in the ancient Near East, in this time period, the walls were considered the city itself. It's, it's representative of repairing the city as a whole. Both, Secondly, biblically speaking, Ezra 9 and Nehemiah chapter 1 indicate that these inspired biblical authors themselves associated this decree with the restoration of the city itself, of Jerusalem as a whole. Uh, thirdly, Daniel 9.25 informs us that God did not merely intend to rebuild the city, but also to, quote-unquote, restore it. So remember, restoring the city includes not just the physical repairs rebuilding, but the spiritual restoration of the land as well. So therefore, we must include the arrival of Ezra to Jerusalem and the initiation of his religious reforms as an integral part of the going forth of the decree. So, yeah, the, the restoring is mentioned before the rebuilding, implying it was the more important consideration. And thus, Ezra's arrival, accompanied by a full complement of Levites and temple servants, uh, who brought, according to the Bible, in-depth knowledge of the law and had royal authorization from Artaxerxes, the ecumenid Persian emperor or king of kings, um, to both teach and enforce the law of Moses, the Torah. Um, that was what allowed the true restoration of the city and its people to take place. And there's an interesting biblical connection. If we look at the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 26, 
it actually addresses what Daniel 9.25 is referring to when it speaks of the quote-unquote restoration of the city. It has a specific reference to the implementation of the magisterial reforms of Ezra um, uh, when he returned to the city. Um, and he returned the city to the precepts of God, the law of Moses. And the passage in Isaiah 126 is a prophecy of what Ezra would do, therefore connecting this uh, initiation of the 490 years to the spiritual restoration of, of that Ezra brought to the land. So, so yeah, Isaiah 126 says, Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city, restored city, in other words. And the context of this passage is the situation just before the Babylonian captivity. Um, so, yeah, as the ESV study Bible notes, quote, unquote, the prophet looks forward to a cleansed people after the historical judgment of the Babylonian exile restored to its mission, not just physically, but to its spiritual mission as being a light to the Gentiles. And it promises the Lord's judgment on the nation that their uh, dross and alloy, their sinful compromises with the surrounding nations, will finally be removed. Once this is done, God promises to restore. But the same it's the same word, that's the same word, shuab, for restore in Isaiah 126 that is used in Daniel 9.25. Incredible. Um, so yeah, and, and speaking also their judges as at the first and their counselors as at the beginning, well, this is exactly what God did when he brought Ezra, who set up magistrates, teaching and enforcing the law of Moses. Okay, so so I think this is a powerful connection. It, I think this argument from the spiritual restoration does really favor the 457 decree as the start of this 490-year period. Plus, there's a bonus for Christians because if we use this as the starting date, well, 483 years, literally, as sabbatical year cycles, we get 457 BC, the issuing of the decree from Artaxerxes, minus 483 years equals 26 AD. But remember, there is no year zero, so we have to add one. So it's actually 27 AD, the very same year the Gospels say Jesus the Messiah started his ministry. If you're a Christian, you're going, ding, 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 this has got to be it. Um, but as, as we'll see with the sabbatical year cycles, it gets even more amazing than this. Um, we, can, we can go further than just the year. Um, okay, so going on with the sabbatical year's interpretation. Um, so it's important to note we cannot begin counting multiples of seven years, beginning from whatever date Artaxerxes may have first published his decree, because agricultural years were always reckoned as beginning in the fall month of Tishri. Um, so therefore, the counting must commence with Tishri 1st of the same year. So we, it, it means the cycles started on a specific day, Tishri 1st, 457 BC, because that's the sabbatical year cycle start date, the agricultural-based year started and got underway. And so that means that the first year, the first sabbatical year cycle, was completed on Tishri 1st, 456 BC. Uh, and then we can count um, the sabbatical year cycles as completed after that. So, because remember, the, it's it's not like, oh, the land is enjoying its sabbatical year res restoration on 457. No, it, it takes that one year to bring it up to completion. Um, so that first full year ends Tishri 1st, 456 BC. Yeah, the high priest prior to Ezra's return or arrival, they mostly paid attention to the getting the temple rebuilt and uh, reinstituting temple-based sacrifices. That was what was most important to them. So they weren't following the sabbatical year or agricultural year cycle, and they weren't observing every seventh year giving the land a rest. It was only after Ezra, the priest and scribe, came and began to teach and admonish the people that full obedience to all of the law of Moses was once again required and insisted upon. 
So yeah, I think the, the most important thing, since the count of the sabbatical year observance was always incremented at the fall month of Tishri, which is around September to October, uh, and since Ezra arrived in Jerusalem two months prior to Tishri 1st, 457 BC, it makes more sense that that was the date, the, uh, the earliest possible date for the resumption of the sabbatical year cycle in the Holy Land and the res uh, resuming of the counting of these things. It doesn't make sense that Ezra would wait a full year to implement the sabbatical year cycles. He would get, get it started right away. So from this, we can actually tentatively conclude that the sabbatical year counting in the post-exilic period began on Tishri 1st, 457 BC. This specific day was the start of the 490-year cycle. Incredible. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, and, you know, like I said, we can actually confirm this using Zuckerman's pattern. Going back to the table, you see everything lines up here with Zuckerman here. Here are the cycles. Look at this, bada boom, bada bing, 457 BC matches up perfectly going all the way down to the time of the Messiah with these sabbatical year cycles, 27 AD, time of Jesus, perfect, amazing, incredible. So yeah, I think this sabbatical year interpretation is the way to go and we can get specific days. It's incredible. And using Zuckerman's patterns, we can find... We find that the final year of the 69 weeks, the 7 plus 62 weeks of years, spans from Tishri 1st or September 30th, 26 AD, all the way through Elul 29th, September 19th of 27 AD. So therefore, the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks informs us that the Messiah could not be manifested until Tishri 1st, the Feast of Trumpets, 27 AD at the earliest, because he is said not to come until the 7 plus 62 weeks is completed. Okay, so let's continue on here. So in terms of the second question issue here in this commentary, the word, it's important to note that the word until is emphasized above because it is critically important to a correct understanding of what Daniel's saying in verse 26 and 27. So remember, it says in chapter 9, verse 25, that from the issuing of the proper decree until, meaning up until the time of the manifestation in Greek, it's phaneru in John 131, for example, the manifestation or coming of the anointed one, 69 sabbatical year cycles, 483 literal years total would pass first. And only after that would the Messiah show up. So the Messiah doesn't come during the 69th week or during uh, this, the 483-year period. It's not like he shows up 482 years later and says, here, here I am before the 483. No, 483 sabbatical cycles must complete, and only then does the Messiah show up. That's what this prophecy is saying. So the Messiah, the anointed one, he is cut off or crucified, as we know with Jesus, sometime during the interregnum after Daniel's 69th year sabbatical year cycle concludes. There, as we'll see in a bit, there has to be some gaps because think about it. Um, if you interpret, again, 27 AD, Jesus shows up. He's the only significant Jewish messianic figure in 27 AD who shows up and claims messiahship. But he's killed in 30 AD. And the city, Jerusalem, isn't destroyed until 70 AD, 40 years later. So obviously there has to be a gap, some gap years in these in this between these two periods, the 69 weeks and the 70th week. There has to be a gap, um, or, or else you have to just say there's a Bible prophecy error. Um, it's important to note that the, when it says the one who uh the prince who is to come uh, and destroy the city in Jerusalem, okay, that uses the word he to describe uh that part. But then it says the one, the one, it switches from he to the one who makes desolate. And although it is grammatically possible that this person is the same as the prince to come, the fact that the reference changes from he to one uh, might imply that someone else is in view. And perhaps it's talking about the false prophet. If you take a future view, false prophet who's introduced after the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. It doesn't necessarily have to be 
talking about the same person who destroyed the, the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, who was Titus, uh, the Roman general Titus, the son of Vis the emperor Vespasian. That's what I wanted you to get here is, um, look, there's, there's a gap period after the 69 weeks. There has to be. And the Messiah or the anointed one is not killed until after the full completion, 69 full sabbatical year cycles have to have to commence. And we know that's on Tishri 1st, 20, 27 AD. And that's when the Messiah, only after that does the Messiah show up. Coincidentally, that's when uh, Jesus shows up and gets baptized by John and is declared the son of the Messiah, one might, one might want to say. Okay, so going to number the fourth objection uh, to deal with the final week. Again, this isn't uh, as much to do with the Maccabean thesis, although some people try to say that Antiochus is this prince who is to come. And because the prince who is to come is the same as this one during the 70th week, they link it to the Maccabean period. Yeah, so this leaves the one more week in the prophecy. And we know that there has to be some gaps, some level of gaps, um, at least between 25 and 36 years, I believe it is, when I when you calculate it in reverse order, we know Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Well, if you subtract uh, one week, we arrive, or one week of years, we arrive at 63 AD, 63 AD minus 483 years. Again, remembering there's no zero, uh, zero AD year. That gets us to 421 BC. That's too late. There are no decrees and we know that the decree uh, started in 457 BC. So there, there has to be at least 25 to 36 years of a gap, at least, or more involved in interpreting this prophecy. What does it say during this final week? Desolations are included in this period as well. Now, by analogy with the desolations following the Babylonian exile that we learned about in Isaiah and Jeremiah, um, these did not end until after the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and it can be argued that in our own day, the land of Israel remains in a state of desolation because many Jews are still scattered in the diaspora among the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. Uh, Muslims still control access to the Temple Mount and, and all that stuff. So there's an easy, obvious future interpretation to this 70th week. Moreover, there are strong internal evidences within Revelation itself that from a Christian perspective, full, at least full preterism, because I... Uh, do have some partial preterist understandings. I am an amillennialist millennialist in terms of my eschatology. So I, I do believe there are fu future fulfillments left in store um, in terms of Dan Daniel's prophecy and that sort of thing, obviously, right? So, yeah, you know, so it's just saying, this guy's saying, look, if you take a full preterist stance, everything is fulfilled, all prophecies fulfilled by 70 AD, that just doesn't work. And in fact, it even contradicts the book of Revelation um, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, it, it couldn't have all been fulfilled by 70 AD, let alone fulfilled in the time of the Maccabees, as the liberal scholars want to say. Um, you know, for example, John declares that Revelation was both a vision and a prophecy in, in the book. Um, but Daniel 9.24 says a pur the purpose of, or one of the main purposes of the 70 weeks is to seal up vision and prophecy. So obviously prophecy and visions were still happening in the 90s AD when John wrote the book of Revelation, according to most biblical scholars. So yeah, I think a little bit of reflection shows that the exegesis of Daniel 9 here um, is in fact correct. The sabbatical year cycles is what's in view. There's no gap or uh, separation with the first 69 weeks. The seven years and the 62 weeks are one 69-week period or a period of 483 years, then the Messiah after that will show up uh, in 27 AD and manifest himself and be killed. And after that, the temple will be destroyed by the prince who is to come and the city destroyed. And then there would be the final seven-year period at some point. Okay, so there is the most important objection. Remember they said, the who is this Messiah that would be uh, cut off and killed after the 69-week period? Well, according to these liberal scholars in the commentary, the anointed one is none other than the high priest Onias III, who was killed in 172 or 171 BC uh, by Antiochus Epiphane and his agents. So 
basically, uh, I would just say, number one, we can absolutely rule this out just based on the timing. Look, if we take 605 BC, the latest possible date, minus 483 years for the start of the prop 490 year period, minus 483 years, which is the seven plus 62 weeks of years period. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we come out to 122 BC, way after, 40, 50 years after Onias was killed. Uh, the timing just doesn't work. And as we saw, the weeks of years are meant to be interpreted literally as sabbatical year cycles, starting Tishri 1st to Tishri 1st of the fall of the each seven-year cycle before they start again. Um, but we can also rule out Antiochus Epiphanes as the prince who is to come and Onias III as this messiah that gets killed for various other reasons. For example, the connection with Isaiah 40. Remember, Isaiah 40 is the start of the four servant songs and the most important messianic prophecy in the world, Isaiah 53, that really uh, speaks to it being Jesus, clearly. But in Isaiah 40, this is the prediction of the coming of the Lord in judgment and the kingdom to take away Israel's sin. And this is clearly messianic, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Who's that? Remember, John the Baptist. That's what the New Testament tells us, where Jesus applies this to John as being that voice crying in the wilderness, ushering in the the Messiah's arrival, and the kingdom of God's everlasting righteous kingdom being brought in, um, but uh, preceded by uh, the Messiah taking away Israel's sin at the coming of the Lord in judgment. And we also have the time of the judgment of Jerusalem. Um, so we have this promise of the coming, coming in of everlasting righteousness after this judgment and removal of sin, and this ushering in of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth the true eschaton or kingdom of God. So if Isaiah 40 is the background, and most biblical scholars, atheist, skeptic, doesn't matter, they agree this is, Isaiah 40 is indeed the background for Daniel chapter 9. And there are various reasons for that, as well as similarities with Malachi chapter 3 and 4 being identical in this place. Um, but since Isaiah 40 foretold the ministry of John uh, preceding the 70 AD coming of Christ, in judgment um, and the taking away of Israel's sin, it must be true that Daniel 9 foretold that same day of salvation is referring to the same day of the Lord that Isaiah 40 is talking about, which talks about this taking away of uh, Israel's sin. Yeah, um, I think that this uh, fits Jesus. This does not fit, as we'll see, Onias third in any way. He doesn't take away Israel's sin, as we'll see, and he doesn't bring in our usher in everlasting righteousness, quite the opposite, in fact. But um, secondly, Onias III as the anointed one doesn't work because um, uh, it's claimed that the high priest at the time, Onias III, who was killed, fulfills this. But number one, he was murdered in 172 or 171 BC. So just historically speaking, um, and chronologically speaking, look, he fled Jerusalem. He was no longer the high priest. He was replaced by his brother Jason, who was an evil uh, high priest, and by Antiochus in 175 BC, and then he fled Jerusalem to escape the wrath of Antiochus, and he died in exile outside of Jerusalem. Even Loftus's skeptical source admits this. If we go back quickly to take a look at that, even uh, right... Uh, Right here, uh, the high priest Onias III murdered in 171 BC, from which the author dates the beginning of the persecution. Onias was in exile when he was killed. So even this liberal commentator is admitting the historical facts. And that, unfortunately, rules him out entirely as being a proper mess candidate for the fulfillment of this verse. Yeah, um, the high priest, um, it's, it's too late. I mean, he... Also, um, Onias III did not rededicate the temple after its defilement by Antiochus in 168. Again, 168 BC, the prince was going to defile the temple and that sort of thing. But the Messiah, Onias III, was already dead by that point. He died a full three years before Antiochus even defiled the temple. So how did Onias III in his death usher in everlasting righteousness or take away the sins of Israel? Chronologically and historically speaking, it just doesn't work. He can't be the anointed one. He didn't accomplish 
the taking away of Israel's sins through his actions. He did not make atonement. He did not establish everlasting righteousness. And he didn't anoint the most holy place in any single way. Now, it has to be admitted, Onias was probably the last good high priest, right? He was certainly respected for resisting the pagans and the Hellenizing uh, influences of Antiochus and, and that sort of thing and preserving respect for the Bible uh, and God's laws and ways. Um, he was also resisting the plundering of the God's temple's treasures by, you know, the King Seleucus Philopater, uh, pre, pre, uh, the predecessor to Antiochus. But the fact remains, he was not the priest that was in charge of the temple after its desecration by Antiochus. And so it, it's just anachronistic to suggest that he was the one that made the atonement or took away the sin and made the reconciliation, uh, let alone brought in everlasting righteousness that we didn't. We had the Romans uh, going after Israel. So, yeah, the kingdom of God was not ushered in in the Maccabean period. It would be obviously a false prophecy, and no one would have uh, considered Daniel. They would have considered Daniel a false prophet if this was the case. And, again, because this happened, uh, Onias was murdered a full three to four years before Antiochus defiled the temple. This just means there's no way to hook up the 70th week to this period after 171 because supposedly in the middle of the 70th week Antiochus defiled the temple in 168 or 167 BC and it was then Judas Maccabeus who cleansed the temple temple in 164 BC so that's seven years after the death of Onias so that just means that three and a half years after the end of the 11th 70th week this timeline uh, falsifies the claim that Onias was the Messiah of Daniel chapter 9. It just doesn't work. Um, but uh, the one thing I also wanted to um, mention here is it also doesn't work because Jer the people of Jerusalem, they didn't kill Onias III, as this prophecy suggests. It wasn't the people. Um, the attack and the desolation of the temple was not God's punishment for uh you know, the um, Antioch is killing on Onias. And Menelaus, who was the high priest that killed Onias, uh, being an agent of Antiochus, but he did so as a pawn of Antiochus. And, and this Menelaus himself did not die until approximately 161 BC. So he wasn't punished according to this prophecy in the time frame that he was supposed to after that three and a half weeks. So yeah, the, once again, you know, the, the attack on Jerusalem was not the avenging of the blood of Onias, since the one guilty of that crime, neither Antiochus uh, nor Menelaus, were slain in that attack. But in Daniel 9, it is the city that is being destroyed for killing the anointed Messiah. Jerusalem didn't kill Onias III. They did kill Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders, the corrupt hypocrites in charge. They were the ones who killed Jesus. Perfect fit with Daniel 9. Onias III is not a perfect fit. Also, the in terms of the elements of atonement, taking away sin, etc., here's the important thing about why it's important. Onias was in exile. He was not in the holy city. He was not in the temple. He was not serving as a high priest when he died. And that's a major problem because these are tasks are distinctively and exclusively the cultic and liturgical work of the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. You cannot perform it anywhere else in the entire world. It has to be temple, Jerusalem, or else it doesn't work. And this is what the biblical requirements are. So Ananias couldn't do it from exile. He couldn't perform these tasks from exile through his death or any or anywhere or any other means. Um, and we know it wasn't any other high priest that followed Onias because Menelaus was uh, the man who murdered Onias. He was a corrupt, evil, sinful, and satanic man. He was not a biblical follower of, of uh, God. And it couldn't have been his henchman. So, yeah, um, because he purchased the high priesthood through bribery um, from Antiochus there and, and killed Onias, um, yeah, he, he did not, and biblically speaking, could not establish everlasting righteousness, nor did he, did he or could he make atonement and take away the sins of Israel because he was totally corrupt himself. Also, Daniel 9.24 foretold the coming world of everlasting righteousness, 
And this must be seen as a prediction of the long-anticipated messianic kingdom, as we saw with its link to Isaiah. And it's, it comes in in its fullest sense. Now, was everlasting righteousness in its fullest messianic sense uh, brought in with the death of Onias? No. In fact, the Maccabean revolt was all about bringing in the old covenant, not a new covenant, like Jeremiah says the Messiah is supposed to do. Um, so yeah, again, this is another reason to rule out Onias' death as, as being the anointed one's death in Daniel 9. It didn't uh, bring in uh, a new covenant. It just reestablished the old covenant. And also it's interesting to note that in the late Second Temple period, there, there was the belief that the high priestly office had been so defiled, contaminated, and degraded for so long that there were no qualified high priests. And therefore, the entire temple cultus was totally defiled. Um, now, again, I can't prove that's a majority belief at this time. It's definitely among the Essenes in the first century AD. But there was this widespread belief in the late Second Temple period about the high priestly line from Onias onward and saying that, look, they were all just defiled and corrupt. They, none of them could make the atonement uh, or bring, bring an end to the everlasting sins. Sounds like they needed a priest from the order of Meshizeldek, Jesus Christ. That's the only way they can take away the sins of Israel, according to this belief. Um, also, we have in Isaiah 65, the old creation is destroyed, along with the people that spurned Lord's uh, gracious calling to repentance and obedience. Now, as a result of that rebellion, Israel would fill the measure of her sin. Fill the measure of her sin. That's an interesting line there and it's reminiscent of what Jesus says in the Gospels talking about how the scribes and Pharisees were so satanic and hypocritical and sinful that they were bringing the measure of sinness to its completion right before they uh, were going to kill him with them killing him as the Messiah so yeah these identical tenets and elements have been found in Isaiah 66 about the rebellious people and giving the when they're destroyed the sinful city this gives rise to the new heavens and the new earth in the eschaton. So this seems to be what the text of Daniel demanded. It, it can't be fulfilled uh, in terms of everlasting righteousness. It can't be established by any restoration of the old covenant temple, which is at best what Onias contributed to or advocated to and was martyred for. Um, it's just, it has ineffective sacrifices and the revival of Torah observance does nothing. These are just tutors and stuff like that. So, yeah, on Onias is not bringing in a new covenant and in, uh, bringing the laws of Moses to dwell in our hearts, within us, spiritually in any way. Um, so I, I think we can outrule him that way. He, he, yeah, Onias third, as well as every other uh, high priest, they just couldn't. Uh, they were disqualified automatically and biblically speaking. They didn't and couldn't bring in the new heavens and the new earth by trying to reestablish the old the Old Testament or the old Moses law and that sort of thing. There had to be something new, better, superior, spiritually superior, where it was written on our hearts. That new covenant that Jeremiah 31 speaks of and that Jesus brought in kind of thing. So, yeah, that's the other that's it for the presentation. That's why I think we should um, not think that Onias III is the anointed one. I don't think the claims from this liberal commentator are very persuasive at all. And um, yeah, I think there's something interesting here with the sabbatical years that I uh, that interpretation makes a lot of sense to me. That's why I wanted to present that view. And I will include links to the more in-depth scholarly level sources so you can get more details about how exactly that works, how it's, how that interpretation is argued for. I've just provided a, a very quick snippet here for you guys. But uh, yeah, no, look, in terms of the, the claims of the skeptics here, the four claims, the three periods are literal 365-day years, uh, weeks of years. Uh, so it's a 490-year period, and we can know the exact date it started and the exact date it ended in terms of the 69 weeks, at least. Uh, we know there was a gap between the set. There's a gap of some sort, at least 25 to 36 years or more. 
between the 69th completion of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week, during which time the anointed one or the Messiah would be killed and the city and the temple of Jerusalem would be destroyed, both of which happened amazing um, after the 69th week. Um, these were literal sabbatical year cycles um, and that sort of thing confirmed independently by Zuckerman and his scholarly work on the sabbatical year cycles and that sort of thing fits perfectly with the Christian interpretation of Jesus as the Messiah, totally doesn't work at all with Onias III as the supposed anointed one during and just prior to the Maccabean revolt. Um, I think that a lot of the things in the 70th week have to happen in the future, but there is zero way to make that consistent with Onias III uh, or with what was going on with Antiochus IV um, in the Seleucid Empire during the time of the Maccabees in 175 to 160 BC. There's no correlation, and the dates just hopelessly do not match up. Whereas we have independent, the Jesus Christians have independent attestation through the sabbatical year cycles um, to find the precise start and precise, precise ending date of the 69-week period before the Messiah would have to show up. Yeah, uh, but that's uh, that's it. Um, all right, have a happy week and uh, happy new year to everybody.